for the entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about how they might get involved in this lunar exploration and lunar development effort, I would encourage them to stay on the hunt. Um, it's easy to look at the booster companies like you know SpaceX and Blue Origin and um, and ULA. Um, we have new ones coming online. It's easy to look at the lander company, the companies with landers. We're not a lander company. We're a, we're a transportation and infrastructure company. I'm supposed to say. Uh, it's easy to look at our landers and, and landers of some of the other companies that are trying to do similar things, and gravitate towards those fully built systems. But as we begin having more and more traffic at the moon, we're going to need supply chain. We're going to need the development of, of more effective, lighter weight components. And so there's a ton of room for innovation in that um, component technology area to do things differently than we've done before. Um, there's a ton of room for in of innovation yet for us to take more machine learning and AI and apply that in the vicinity of the moon. We'll be able to collect with our sensor um, terabytes of data and not have terabytes of bandwidth to bring that down. So we're gonna need tools like machine learning to analyze the, the raw form data in its full precision at the moon and distill that down to the useful part that we can then afford to bring back. Thinking about, you know, maybe there's something for me. Keep digging. And it might not be in the areas like the landers and the boosters that are right up in front and big symbols, but underneath the hood, there, there could be pieces and services that we need. You've probably heard of SpaceX, but you may not know is there's a whole stable of American space companies working to quickly commercialize outer space. And their first stop is the moon. Our conversation today is with Dr. Tim Crane, who is co-founder and vice president of research and development at Intuitive Machines. Intuitive Machines is on a mission to provide access to the moon for the progress of humanity. We're fortunate to have invested in Intuitive Machines at Capital Factory. You could also invest in them through the NASDAQ since the company went public earlier this year, the only company of its kind not to remain private. Welcome to Austin Preneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Applying his PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas, over a decade of experience at NASA, and partnerships throughout Texas, Tim and his team at Intuitive Machines are now globally recognized leaders in lunar logistics. During his childhood, Tim's family moved to Bossier City, Louisiana, where his passion for aerospace ignited, living so close to Barksdale Air Force Base. Growing up, I basically had um, the Three Stooges and Carl Sagan's contact were the only two shows, you know, in Sesame Street. I, mean, I guess those were the three. But thinking about space, just, you know, and, and the the way Carl Sagan would kind of, you know, with that melodic voice, and he'd, he'd draw these pictures, and it just absolutely floored me, you know. And so it started getting into my mind, and then, um, you know, we caught the craze with Star Wars when it came out. But then we moved to... Uh, 
Bossier City, Louisiana, which uh, is where Barksdale Air Force Base is. And uh, Barksdale has one of the runways that's long enough for the space shuttle to land at. And it just so happened that my dad's office was at the end of that runway, like right outside the fence. And the shuttle had landed um, in California. They had a weather issue. They couldn't land in Florida. So they landed in California and they had put it on the 737 or 747 and, and were flying it across country and they had to stop there. So I was actually on the roof of one of the model homes that my dad sold and the space shuttle flew like 200 feet over my head. Yeah. And it was electric. Yeah. You know, it was just all those thoughts and, and thinking about space and everything to be that close to a spacecraft that humans were in. I was probably 10 years old, you know, it was the early 80s. After that, that was it. That was er, every everything was thinking about how to yeah. how to do something in space. Yeah, you still have a clear memory. Of oh that. yeah, 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 absolutely. It wasn't, uh, you know, where you end up exactly in your career is unpredictable. But there was never any doubt that I was going to do something in space from that point on. It was locked in. Living up to Walter Cronkite's famous words, Tim went to the University of Texas to get his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, and his PhD. But most of all, he got his horns up. But even before completing grad school, Tim's professional journey took him to the Jet Propulsion Lab and the Johnson Space Center to work with NASA. And you ended up going to the University of Texas? I did. Uh, went on a football scholarship uh, at the University of Texas and um, uh, played for two years. And that was a blast. I really enjoyed it. But then I got to the point where I had more knee surgeries than I had knees. And uh, as a young engineer, you know, you, you worry about ratios, and that ratio didn't look good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I stopped playing after my, uh, my sophomore year and then went full-time into, into my studies mm-hmm. and got a, a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering uh, from the University of Texas. And it was the mid-'90s, and i, I got to say, you know, the mid-'90s in Austin, Texas, it's pretty cool. Yeah, and so heard. my advisor came in. He goes, hey, do you want to uh, – you want to – stay in grad school and you know we'll fund it I said, yeah that sounds like a great idea yeah. <laughs> and and the aerospace market in truth was down a little bit in the mid-90s too so it wasn't a great time to go out and start looking for a job so i continued and got a master's and a phd um graduated in 2000 uh, it's funny we're here in the middle of south by southwest and i remember buying a south by southwest wristband yeah. at heb from customer service for like 25 bucks you know, so th- this is how far things have come yeah, I mean, from, from the early days. I know, now. right? I know. So uh, glad to be back. Um, it is still one of my goals. I hope to play bass on stage at South by Southwest sometimes. Tim's passion for science is matched by his passion for music, which has also been a part of his entire journey. My daughter is getting married on Friday. Congratulations. And we got the band back together, and we're going to do a short set for her. You're playing at her wedding. Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. does she know about this? Oh, she requested she, it. She's approved? Okay, totally, good. Totally. Did, did she select the song, too? She did select the song. Oh, what you, can you give us a sneak peek? What are you going to uh, play? Well, they're, they're all originals. So we were, we were your typical um, rock, punk, funk uh, <laughs> mixture of just three guys playing whatever we thought sounded cool and just, you know. And that was an Austin band? No, it was in Houston. Houston. Yeah. Got it. And yeah. So that was that when you were at NASA? Yeah, there, right? absolutely. Got it. So we, we played a few things around there and uh, um, mm-hmm. have a couple of CDs. I remember making CDs, which is kind of, it's been a while. Right. <laughs> Attention entrepreneurs. Are you looking to take your startup to the next level? Check out HubSpot for startups. 
a free founder perk program that can save you up to 90% on HubSpot and over 80,000 on essential software and services, including AWS credits. You'll also connect with founders through growth masterclasses in sales, marketing, and fundraising, plus enjoy exclusive events and offers. You can sign up for free through Capital Factory by going to HubSpot.com startups today. One of the things is, is when you're in, uh, in the grad school in a technical field, um, engineering, typically you're funded through research. So there's, a, there's a lot of research interests out there. And I had the opportunity to work on Mars Pathfinder um, as a research associate for Jet Propulsion Labs. So we were looking at real data, we were analyzing problems, my whole research was, was how to, to make better tracking of spacecraft-like uh, Mars Pathfinder. And through that, I got exposed to the Johnson Space Center at NASA, um, folks at uh, Johns Hopkins out at uh, APL in Maryland, and kind of had this whirlwind final semester. You know, I was perfectly content to let my graduate career keep stretching along, uh, but then my first daughter was born, and all my coursework was done. I just needed to write a dissertation, and nothing like starting your family will encourage you to finish your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I was motivated to get going, and. Um, great offers. There was no bad choice, but the Johnson Space Center um, said, look, it's 2000. We're building the International Space Station. We'll be done in five years, was the plan. And um, then we're moving on to human Mars, right? And we want you to come in and, and be a part of laying in the foundation for, for human Mars exploration, which, you know, how could I refuse that? The ability to be a part of, of something so epic. So came to the Johnson Space Center, was in the engineering directorate and worked on um, advanced mission designs um, and specifically on entry, descent, and landing. I had an opportunity there. Johnson Space Center, because of the space shuttle, was part of America's expertise in entering an atmosphere with a guided vehicle. And um, Apollo, you don't think about those capsules as being steerable, but when you're moving fast enough, you know, you throw any rock hard enough, you can skip it across water, basically, is what happens. So uh, we were involved because of the, the guided entry expertise at the Johnson Space Center. So I got to work on Mars Science Lab with JPL, and Langley was doing the heat shield. So it was a multi-center team going, hey, how do we get at Mars where we can land very accurately? JPL wanted to do that because they wanted to land exactly where their science was with these rovers and these probes. But human spaceflight wanted to do it because we would go and put supplies ahead of time was the plan. So we needed to learn how at Mars do we steer spacecraft, you know, through there. So um, moved on and worked some other projects for automated rendezvous and docking. We were going to try to uh, repair Hubble without sending people. So we were working with, with uh, different uh, organizations doing that. Before that, I was the uh, orbit lead for Orion, which we just had the big Artemis mission. So a lot of the early stages of that I got a chance to work on. But then we had a project called Morpheus. And Morpheus was, this was around the 2009 timeframe. It started out as Project M. Okay. And the M was for a thousand, the Roman numeral for a thousand. And the idea was programs were starting to stretch out at NASA where they were taking longer than we had planned for them to take. At the same time, SpaceX was relatively new on the scene and they were doing things relatively quickly. 
So part of the motivation for Project M was, is could we build inside of NASA a lunar lander in a thousand days? You know, so the technology wasn't just the propulsion system and the guidance system. It was, can we reinvent a way of doing business where you keep all the best parts of all the lessons learned NASA had, but apply it in a way where you could streamline it and go faster? And so it was Project M, and then we were told we had to change the name. So we said, what, what can we do with M? So Morpheus, Morpheus, the god of dreams and dreamers. Cool. So we did that, and we built um, a Morpheus uh, lander and flew it. Uh, I like to say that I have... Uh, designed, built, flown, and crashed experimental landers. So we crashed the first one. But that was part of that thousand days mentality. We sat down and we said, look, we're going to build the first lander so fast that we're going to take a risk that we may lose it. This is all terrestrial testing. We weren't going to the moon yet. We're going to take a chance that we may lose it. But the lessons we'll learn by pushing that hard will be worth it. So we actually had the second vehicle in production when the first one crashed. And so we rebuilt uh, the second vehicle. We actually took the engine out of the smoking crater of the crash of the first vehicle and the propulsion team buffed it out and we flew it another 35 times. But in 2018, the moon came back into favor um, in a big way. And it came back into favor in a way that, that was different from NASA kind of changing policy with administrations, you know, over the decades to, no, the moon's gonna be a priority and we're gonna do it with big companies in traditional airspace, but they were also looking for, for new voices and innovation. So we pivoted and kind of shed, you know, the, the non-space things we were doing. And now we are a lunar space transportation infrastructure company, which didn't exist until a few years ago. It's kind of cool. NASA also has what we call a make-buy process. So if we were working on a spacecraft together and we, we'd, we'd done that problem decomposition and said, well, this is what we need to do. These are the systems we need to accomplish that. Instead of automatically saying, okay, well, let's go make all those things. We would survey one by one and go, well, let's do a make buy. Is it better for us to buy that? Or do we go more vertically integrated and make it? And you really have to be honest with yourself about that. Right. It's easy to say, now I'm going to do it all. I'm going to make all my own chips. I'm going to make all my own batteries. I'm going to do all that stuff. That is very capital intensive. And so we felt like we had a um, balanced perspective where if we understood the problem, we had good systems engineering, we had make-buy skills, and then we had this data analysis, this ability to really crunch large simulations and large aggregations of sensor data that fit very well in this kind of big data emergence that was happening in the 2010s. Entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your startup to the next level? HubSpots for Startups is a game changer. Not only does this free founder program give you access to the industry-leading HubSpot software, but it also offers up to 90% off your first year of service, plus savings of up to $80,000 on top software and services that you actually need. Collaborate with other founders just like you and gain access to growth masterclasses in sales, marketing, and fundraising, as well as in-person events and special offers. Founder perks through HubSpot for startups are available through thousands of entrepreneurial communities, accelerators, or venture capital firms that your startup is already connected to, including us at Capital Factory. 
Best of all, no purchases or credit cards are required to sign up. Just visit HubSpot.com slash startups today and take advantage of this incredible free service. In 2013, Tim, along with Steve Ultimus and Cam Gaffarian, spun out of NASA and founded Intuitive Machines. Steve was the uh, director of engineering uh, at the Johnson Space Center. And I was in, so the directorate would have a number of divisions, the divisions had a number of branches. I was in the advanced concepts kind of group. And then Cam ran um, engineering services uh, for a number of NASA centers and was interested in bringing that to the Johnson Space Center. And Steve would be his customer, so we went and talked to Steve and he said, hey, uh, you know, thinking about doing engineering services here. And over dinner, um, he asked Steve, hey, what are you, what are you passionate about? And Steve said, well, you know, I want to take these skills that we have at NASA, and I think we can take them outside the fence. That's kind of the way we talk about going outside of the agency. We, <laughs> we can take them outside the fence, and we can, we can do great things to help people solve problems, um, real problems in, in terrestrial terms. So um, they kind of forged that agreement, and then Steve came to me and says, hey, look, I know you're thinking about leaving too, um, we chatted about that why don't you join with us and the three of us together to form the company yeah and when did you make the decision to go all in on space we got word that nasa had a new program called commercial lunar payload services clips is what we call it and this was an evolution of nasa's thinking you know you think in um the early space shuttle days really the nasa civil servants were hands-on for most of the work and then they had contractor support, but then that had evolved to where they, they actually moved maintenance of the space shuttle more into the contractor ranks. So that was kind of a step towards uh, a commercialization effort, if you will. And then once the space station was flying, um, they had Boeing managing the space station as the main contractor for management and upkeep of the space station. And then SpaceX and Orbital got the commercial cargo resupply contracts. So now NASA's paying companies to basically take payload packages to resupply the space station. And that was a huge step forward because you really, instead of saying, hey, we're really telling you what to do and we're sure we're gonna get exactly what we want, NASA had to partner with companies to go, well, what I really want more is an end item service. You go build the service. And, and so that was a big step forward. That led to commercial crew. And so now you've got SpaceX crews SpaceX flying crews for NASA to and from space station, and Boeing will be doing that soon. So CLIPS was kind of the next step in that evolutionary process of, hey, how do we engage more companies and more creativity and maybe find some new ways of doing business? And so let me give you a sense of scale. Our lander, the Nova Sea lander, uh, with landing gear, stands about 14 feet tall. And it's a, it's a hexagonal kind of prism shape. Um, kind of looks like a big blocky hot water heater you know, <laughs> in a way. Um, when we launch, we weigh about 2,000 kilograms, so about 4,400 pounds um, if, you, if you prefer Imperial units. Of that, um, two-thirds of it is fuel. Yeah. That's how much fuel it takes to, to make that big maneuver happen and then to make the final landing maneuver happen. So when we land, we're about six or 700 kilograms of lander structure, electronics, and payloads. At that point, the lander goes from being a transportation asset to basically being a common power node for our payloads. 
So our solar arrays are providing power to all the payloads. Our computers are routing their data through our antenna back to that network that we've instantiated. And we have, have shift modes to ground ops where in some cases we're working very closely with the payloads to command the payloads and bring the data back. In other places, we're really hands off and their commands are running through our network system up through the dish. And they're basically, you know, kind of using us as a, a modem, if you will. And that works for about 13 to 14 days. And then the sun sets. Which is one day on the moon, It's right? one, one lunar day, exactly. And then the sun sets, and we'll keep operating those systems as long as we can. But eventually, the vehicle's going to get cold, and we'll probably die. When the sun comes back up again, we'll, we'll try to talk to it again. But for the first missions, we really are limited by how long we're illuminated and, and how long we can stay alive based on solar power. So we have three lunar missions right now, IM-1, 2, and 3. We launched two of them this year, one in June, one uh, in the third quarter. we got to nail the date down on that. And then we have another mission launching in the first half of next year. Lunar missions are just a start. You might even say a small step for intuitive machines. Take a listen to this last segment to learn the company's vision for off-world exploration and commercialization. What are we hoping to learn on the moon? What are the resources really like on the moon? So there's a lot of talk of water ice being at the South Pole. And you can take um, water and break it up into hydrogen and oxygen. You can use that for life support or for fuel. There's a lot of things you can do and not have to have taken that resource with you. So it makes establishing a habitat uh, much more tenable. So that water ice that we've seen from orbit in the South Pole uh, in the deeply shadowed craters, is it a slushy intermixture with the regolith? Is it a solid sheet? Is it a foot deep? Is it a meter deep? You know, we, we don't know. We know we see it from orbit with some of the, uh, the satellites we sent to the moon. So there's a very much a mineral prospecting and assay aspect to this. There's also a ton of science still to be done on the moon to understand the age of the solar system and how the earth was formed and real science questions that have kind of, you know, this bigger understanding our universe uh, purpose. When you get into the math of building a rocket to launch from Earth, where, you know, hey, I want to launch more payload. Okay, well, you need more fuel. Well, I want to launch even more payload. Well, you need even more fuel. But I need fuel to accelerate the fuel. And eventually it tapers off, and you just can't launch anymore. So there's a, a physical limit to what we can launch from the surface of the Earth. The calculus on that changes when you go to the moon. And now you've opened up the asteroids, you've opened up Mars, and you really get this transportation hub that's much easier to go from the moon to other places in the solar system. And it's much easier to go from Earth to the moon. And so in, in my lifetime, we will see a transportation hub uh, at the moon where people go there as a stopping off point to go to Mars. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at CapitalFactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible, and special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show.